Let's turn then this evening in God's Word to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. Let's read God's word to us this evening. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, On that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. As far the reading of God's Word. I invite you to keep this passage open as we refer back to it multiple times in our message. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for the beauty of the Psalms, and we pray that we may be comforted and may be blessed through the preaching of the word. Bless Pastor Bob as he brings this to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to look at four things, our four main points from this psalm this evening. First of all, the opening called praise. Let's note uh, a couple of things in regards to this particular psalm that we haven't referenced yet in these latter psalms in the Psalter. Also, the second thing is the warning of the psalm. This is a a psalm that definitely puts forth a warning to us as God's people. Second, thirdly, the thing that we'll uh, look at and that takes up most of the body of the psalm as well is the assurance that this psalm gives to us. Then lastly, we'll look at the fulfillment of this psalm, how here again we see Christ so beautifully presented for us in the Old Testament. First of all, then, the opening call to praise. Uh, This psalm is actually the one that begins the latter half. We've uh, been working backwards, so that confuses that point just a little bit. But if you just take your Bible and start at 146, it's 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, which is just this continual, ongoing, celebration of hallelujah, of praise the Lord, over and over and over again. These psalms begin in the parentheses of praise the Lord, or in some of your versions, uh, the hallelujah. And then we are told the reasons why, all the reasons why we can shout our hallelujahs, why we can exclaim the glorious praises of our God. One commentator has pointed out it's it's interesting the way in which the Psalter or the book of Psalms has been arranged. 
as you work your way through the book, there is much in the Psalms that, that relates to pain and sorrow, sadness. There is that which relates to guilt and the burden of that guilt of dealing with enemies and how one deals with those enemies. And yet when the, the psalm, the book ends, it concludes on this glorious, upbeat note. Perhaps there is a reflection even in the arrangement of the psalms themselves in which God is saying, here is life. Life is filled with its sadness, it's filled with its joys, it's filled with its comfort, but it also is filled with its sorrows. Life is lived never on the exalted high point, but life is lived in the valleys and on the mountains. And the book of Psalms takes us upon the mountaintops, but it also takes us down into those valleys. But then even as our lives end, It ends in praise. It ends in glory. It ends in an eternity of praise, of hallelujah to the Lord our God. So we we need to note that because this psalm is the beginning of that section. It is here in which the arrangement of the psalms is taking us to the point of seeing the end of life, of seeing the set purpose of our lives, of seeing that which does indeed fill our lives. So that's one thing. This psalm actually begins then this last section. And as we have noted, none of these psalms do we know the author of. There there is no attributing this to the sons of Korah or to Moses or to Solomon or to David or to Asaph. No one is mentioned. Secondly, there is no context ever given. None of these psalms are are we told uh, uh, about the the situation. I began working on uh, one of the the previous psalms, and it speaks about David being in the cave. It speaks about the fact that it is out of his cave experience, out of the time in which Saul is chasing him, that the psalm is written. But these Psalms, 146, 7, 8, 9, 150, have no context. And once again, there is probably a reason for that. Because this is the common experience of God's people. This is God's truth. This this is what it is for each and every one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ. Yes, our lives have those ebbs and flows. But it always ends in praise. It always ends with the the understanding of coming into God's presence and understanding His sovereign love and grace and mercy to us as His people. So the experience is known. We, We as God's people should be able to relate to this psalm. We don't, we don't need a context in order to, oh yeah, it's out of that situation. This is the experience of our lives. This is how we live from day to day. Praise the glory of God. This psalm reminds us of our purpose in life. What is the chief end of man? 
glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Note the first and second verses. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The psalmist, inspired by the Lord, is is calling us to say, here it is, this is life for us. A life of praise. This this is the goal. This This is to what we are striving. That we can sing praise with our whole being to our God throughout our entire life. Indeed, it ought to be our prayer that upon our deathbed, God were to grant us a, a death that we are still cognizant of and aware of and, and can focus on still, that even there, it would be a time of praise. That even there, we'd be calling for someone come and sing, Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Even there, we'd be looking to the Lord, shouting, Praising our hallelujahs to the Lord. That's the goal to which we ought to be striving. That's the goal to which we are to be living. That's what the the catechism, the Westminster, is calling us to. to A life that has always lived in the contemplation of God's sovereignty that results in His praise out of our lives. There's a third thing in the opening call to praise of this psalm that we are to be mindful of. And and that's the idea that the psalm instructs us as to our parental duty. There is a sense here, not only in the opening verse, but in the closing verse as well, with the idea of generations, that, that this is something we are to be testifying about. This is something we are to be communicating to our children, that this praise, this hallelujah, this triumphant chorus of life is something that that we're to be training our children about yes we instruct them we're going through a hard time a difficult time we come to the lord we pray through those times but we trust in the lord we don't put our trust anywhere else we trust in the lord and the lord over the course of my life has so many times shown his mercy and grace love and forgiveness patience, kindness, and goodness, that I I can step back and I can say, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. My whole being, I desire, praise Him. That's the kind of life we are to live. I would say more about that, but next Lord's Day morning, the Lord willing, we're we're going to be in, in Psalm 145 where we read these words, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is not something for us to keep silent. This is not something for us to to just personally in our own soul to do. This is something we are to exclaim to the world around us, to our children that God has blessed us with. Secondly, then, is the warning of the psalm. Verse 3, put not your trust in princes. Don't put your hope in others. That's the warning. 
Others are always sure to disappoint. Man is sure to disappoint. Man cannot provide salvation. Man dies. Man returns to the earth. Man's plans on that very day come to an end. I was telling some brothers earlier in the week the story of William the Conqueror, great uh, hero of, of England. And I was telling of uh, the fact that you know, he, he had risen to prominence in the Battle of Hastings in 1066. But later in life, he was forced into another war the king of France. I believe his name was King Harold of France. And he actually went into France to, 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 to come to conquer. And actually the war was going very well. He, the, they were on the upswing. And then his horse stumbled. And he fell with his chest upon the pummel of the saddle. And he was severely injured. His men took him to a abbey where he, he lay, and obviously they didn't know how to do anything in those days, except they, they were simply waiting for him to recover, but he did not. He died. At the moment of his death, all the other lords who were Supporters of him who were advocates fled. At the moment of his death, as soon as he died, they all got to their horses, went back to their own places, took care of their own affairs. His servants, the, the, the very people who, who he was perhaps most entrusted to, his, his, we would perhaps say his bodyguards, stripped his body bare and left. So the conqueror of England, William the Conqueror, this great hero, lies naked in some foreign land with nobody even to bury him. Nobody care. Put not your trust in princes. Why? Because they return to the earth. They die. And we see it multiple times over and over again, do we not, in the history. We put our hope in a person. And what happens? That person disappoints. Think back. Many of us are old enough to be able to do that. To 1963, there, there was a, a dawning. There, there was at least a sense that perhaps things were, 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 were going to get better. We had a president that people thought at least was... was young and vibrant and maybe there was some hope and, and so on. Then a gunshot rings out. He lies dead. The faces of people show the fact that they had put their hope in a prince. But now he was dead. See, the psalm is warning us. Don't go that route. Don't put your hope and trust in others. 
They are going to disappoint because they are sinful creatures. They are the son of man. There is no salvation. They are not perfect. They stumble, they fall, they fail. They die. They die. How often isn't it that, to use the sports analogy, that some professional team drafts some great college star. The whole hopes of the organization fall upon the shoulders of of this. This is the person that's going to revive us. This is the person that's going to bring us back. This is the person we're going to give multi, multi millions of dollars to. They show up at tryouts out of shape. They show up at tryouts having signed their contract, been given their forward bonus, having involved themselves in some sort of drug or crime. And they never even see the playing floor. Put not your hope and trust in princes. And certainly the psalmist here is not just talking about life. He's talking about salvation in particular. Don't put your trust there. They cannot save. They do not last. That being said, there is an underneath warning then in this psalm as well. Not only not to put your hope in others, but don't put that hope in yourself as well. One of the people that we read in Scripture who did are, is found in the parable of Jesus. The parable of the man who's going to build bigger barns. The parable of the man who is self-confident. The parable of the man who thinks he is in control of his own destiny. And, and Jesus says, you fool. You fool. Not only is that true for us on the practical level, putting our trust in ourselves. No, I can do this. I can figure this out. I'll get ahead. I know. I don't need the Lord. How much more true is it of our salvation? We know our own hearts. We know our own minds. We know our own souls. We know there is no salvation to be found in us. We are not the perfect sacrifice that is required of the Lord. Don't put your trust in others. Don't put your trust and your hope in yourself. But, some writer says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So don't go here. That's the warning. Instead, understand the blessing of having the God of Jacob as your God. I I find it, that reference always so interesting. I, I recall that that reference is found in other psalms as well. You go back, for example, to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Okay, remember that one? And then we read on a couple of occasions, verse 7, The God, Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Who is it that we should put our hope and trust in? In the God of Jacob. Now, why the God of Jacob? 
I mean, think if this psalm is written in the latter stages or even the middle stages of Israel's history. Why would God direct? Why, why would God inspire someone to write? Put your trust in the one who is the God of Jacob. Well, it actually has something to do with our passage this morning, doesn't it? Genesis 25. How does Jacob appear upon the stage of human history, but holding on to his brother's heel, seeking to be that supplanter, seeking to be that trickster, seeking to be that deceiver? And you read the story of Jacob, and and this is not the story of some great, well-rounded saint. This isn't the story of some man who is on the pinnacle of sanctification. The story of Jacob is the story of a man who struggles. He struggles against himself. He struggles against his enemies. He struggles with God. Remember the story at the river Jabbok? He literally struggled with God, which was a picture of the spiritual struggle that was going on within his soul. See, the reason Jacob is mentioned is because that's what we need. We need the God who is the God of Jacob. We need the one who is the the Savior of men like Jacob. See, you throw Noah's name in there and we, we could tend to go, yeah, Noah, but he was, wow, you know. Even Abraham, we might go, Abraham. No, put your hope and trust in the one who who declared him to be the God of Jacob. Because you know what that reminds us of? It reminds us of this. Jacob didn't save himself. God saved Jacob. God rescued Jacob. God rescued Jacob from himself. And he did it by grace. Jacob didn't earn it. Jacob didn't deserve it. God gave him grace. Who's the one that you and I should trust? The God of Jacob, the God of grace, the God who changes the heart. Thirdly, as we look at this psalm, there is the assurance of the psalm as well. And let me highlight six things that the psalm tells us as as far as assurances that, that you and I can have. As, as we think, as we reflect upon this psalm. It does not set these things in terms of questions. It doesn't say, does the Lord does, do this? And then we have to sort of ponder and ask ourselves, well, you know, sometimes we see this, sometimes we don't. No, the, the psalm sets it in the tone and in the language of, this is what the Lord does. And because we know that the Lord does these things, you and I can have assurance let's look at them verse 6 the one who makes heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them keeps faith forever now faith here in verse 6 refers to promise he keeps his promises forever. The Lord never goes back on a promise that he makes. 
Now just stop and think about that in terms of that verse back up above. Put not your trust in princes. Do our princes, do our elected officials go back on their promises? Do they walk things back? And now instead of a wall that's impenetrable, we've got a solar panel up. They walk back their promises all the time. God, however, never does so. He keeps faith. He keeps his promises. As we looked at that passage out of Genesis 25 this morning, and and then we go to that 2 Corinthians passage, all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The confirmation of the fact that God keeps his promise is Jesus Christ. Every promise that God makes to you, to me, He keeps. There's not one of us in this room who can say we do that. Not one of us. We all fail, we fall short. We are princes, okay, in whom we should not put our trust. Now, should we strive to do so? Absolutely. Should we be people who keep our word? Absolutely. But none of us can do so. But the Lord does. See, don't put the Lord on the same plane as the princes of men. Yeah, I'm not sure if the Lord's going to keep that promise to me or not. I'm not sure the Lord's going to really rescue me. I'm not sure if this is going to happen. I'm not sure if this is going to happen. The Lord keeps faith forever. It would be interesting sometime, and maybe this would be something for, for us to engage in at some point, is for each of you, each of us, to think about what is the most precious promise that you think God makes to you in his word? And we, we, you know, Out of all the, the promises of the Lord, which, which one hits your heart? And then to be able to look at it and say, and God will keep that promise forever. He'll never break it. Can I have the assurance that God will love me in Jesus Christ for all eternity? Yes. Can I believe in the promise of God that nothing will separate me ever from His love to me in Jesus Christ? Yes. Why? God keeps faith forever. Do I, can I believe the promise of God that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He will be there? Yes. Can I believe the promise of God That all things are meant to work out for my good, conforming me to the glorious image of Christ? Yes. Why? Because God keeps faith forever. Secondly, the second one, is that the Lord gives freedom to the prisoner. Verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed, gives food. For the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. I've never been in jail. I'm 
trust you never have either, although I have a haunting memory of my childhood. Um, it must have been probably kindergarten or first grade and Walker Christian School, the building still exists there on Richmond Street, had uh, some sort of bazaar, okay, a fall bazaar of some sort. And I remember there being a jail. And I, you know, it was one of those fundraiser things. You put somebody in jail and then everybody had to you know, cough up some money to get them out, that sort of thing. I don't know how many years I went to school absolutely afraid I was going to go to jail. Huh? Thinking that that's what school is. It's a place of jail. And it, and it just terrified me. I, I don't like watching those shows on TV to today where they, you know, talk about a prisoner and he goes to jail. I, I just don't like that. It, jail to me is, is one of the worst places, physical places on earth you could ever be. So when I hear this verse and I hear that the one who is in jail, the one who is the prisoner, has been set free imagine the joy that a person who has ever been incarcerated must have? Can you imagine what it, what it must have been like to have been a prisoner of war during Nazi Germany or a prisoner of war during Vietnam and then to be set free? This is what the Lord does. He sets those who are prisoners to sin. This is the work of the Lord. Thirdly, the Lord gives sight to the blind. Think about it in this respect. We have five senses. Touch, taste, smell, hearing, sight. Of those five, which would you least like to lose? Okay, so if you if you had to choose, I got to I got to you know I, I I got to get rid of four of my senses, but I want to retain one of the four, one of the five. Which one is it that you that you guard the most, that you keep the most, that you go? This is one I'd really like to hold on to. Which would it be? My, my guess is there are a large number of us in this room who'd probably say eyesight. The idea of, of going through life without the ability to see kind of scary in that regard. Now imagine one who has never been able to see been giving that sight. We who were blind in our sin, God has come by the work of His Holy Spirit to cause us to see. This is what God does. Even that most precious thing, God opens up the eyes. I suppose in our society today there are degrees of blindness. I think it's probably designated in some way in that regard. But the, the, the idea behind this phrase in the psalm is, is the complete inability to see because it, it has to parallel our spiritual inability to come to faith. 
It's only by the work of the This is what he does. He lifts up the bowed down, or he lifts up the crushed, as some of your versions may say. It's reiterated for us in the psalm we had last week of 147, verse 3. He heals up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This is is not the bowed down with some sort of physical limitation, but this is those who are crushed in spirit. This is those who have been beaten down, beaten down, beaten down, beaten down by the society, by the world around them, by the religious society of the day, by the cultural society of the day, by family, whatever it is. They've been beaten down. They are bowed down. They are crushed. They are brokenhearted. What does the Lord do? He lifts those up. The Lord loves the righteous, verse 8. This is the promise of God. The Lord loves the righteous to those whose hearts are set at seeking to do that which is right, that which is true, that which is what God speaks. God's attitude towards them is so favorably disposed that He takes actions on their behalf. This is what God is doing for us. See, we love the Lord. We love Christ. We love the Holy Spirit. We love the church. We love His Word. We have a desire. We want to serve Him. We want to follow Him. We are indeed the righteous of the earth. Made that way not because of ourselves, but because He's the God of Jacob, because of grace. But when we are in that situation, how is God's view of us? He loves us. All of life, God is working towards our good. It's His promise. This is what He does. This is the assurance that you and I can have as we live from day to day. It's no wonder the psalmist can say, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. In every experience of my life, I will praise the Lord. Why? Look at what the Lord is doing. Verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. The pilgrim. The one really who is not at home. The one who is defenseless. The one who has no rights. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say in our society today because it seems sometimes that The alien that is within our gates of our nation sometimes seems to have more rights than we do in certain matters. But in the day and age in which this is written, out of the psalmist experience, uh, somebody who, who was not a citizen of the nation had no rights. That's right. Not a citizen of the kingdom of God when I am born. I am an enemy of God. The sinner under the wrath of God. What does God do? He watches over the sojourner and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. God cares. Brings me in. He defends. 
He protects. He guards. I come under His covenant. I come into His family. He adopts me as His son. I am given a citizenship. Not here on earth. I'm given a citizenship in glory. These are the truths that the psalmist is saying that God does. Doesn't say he will do. Doesn't say he might do. Doesn't say he can do. Doesn't say sometimes he's favorable to do. This is what God does. See, that's different than saying, God will do this if... This isn't conditional. This isn't in the sense of, well, you know, God has the power. Sometimes he just doesn't decide to use it. This is what God does. Ongoing, daily, every day, every moment of our lives. God is at work. And you can have the assurance of knowing that. This is not questionable. This is not up in the air. See, these words do not come from the heart of a man. These words come from the heart of God Himself. These are the inspired words given to man to write, but they come from God's own heart. This is God pouring Himself out. This is God speaking to you tonight. It's God speaking to me tonight and saying, you can have the assurance because I'm telling you. I, the one who is the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. I, who am the God of Jacob, Promise forever to keep faith. I will do always what I declare that I do. Fourthly, then, let's look at the fulfillment of this sound. And obviously, when you, you talk about that, you, you would know immediately, well, if this psalm is going to be fulfilled, my guess is that it must be fulfilled through Christ, and you have that absolutely correct. Let me demonstrate two ways in which Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm. First, we find its fulfillment in Christ's own words. Now just think of the things that, have, that the Lord has promised to do, that the Lord said he was going to do. Okay. Now turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick it up at verse 16. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. This, this is, in a sense, his first public discourse. Verse 16, Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And where did we just read about setting captives free? Where did we just read about the eyes of the blind being opened? Where did we just read about those who are oppressed being lifted up? Psalm 146. In other words, when Christ comes, Christ says, I am fulfilling the very promise that God made in Psalm 146. I am the fulfillment of that. In the heart of every one of us as believers, there are times, though, aren't there, we would have to admit where we maybe sometimes question that. We're not alone. Turn forward to Luke chapter 7. There was another who also had his questions. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Are you the promise of God or aren't you? This is not some pagan. This was John the Baptist man who received some of the highest praise that the Lord Jesus Christ ever gave to an individual. A man who we would say was a man of great faith, a man of great courage, a man of great conviction, a man who becomes a martyr because of the righteous proclamation of the word. Are you really the fulfillment of the promise? Verse 21, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. Interesting, isn't it, how the Lord directs Luke, who wasn't there, but to find the eyewitnesses to say, how did Jesus respond? What what, what was going on? What's he doing? What does verse 21 tell you he's doing? He's doing Psalm 146, isn't he? That's what he's doing. He's actively engaged in fulfilling the promise that God had made in that psalm. Verse 22, And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one 
was not offended by me. See, we do see the fulfillment of this psalm in Christ. Out of his own words, he's saying, I'm come, I've come. I am the amen. I am the one who, who has come to fulfill the promises of the Lord. You can be assured of that. Want to know how you can be assured of that? Blind man, see. Deaf man, hear. Lame man, walk. Dead man, rise. How do you believe? See, that's what those, these miracles of Jesus that we read throughout the Gospels are his declaration. I am the fulfillment of God's promise. You can have that assurance. You can have that peace. You can have that knowledge. This isn't up for question. See, the fulfillment of this psalm is indeed seen through Christ. But it's evidence, is it not, in our lives? Were we not blind? Were we not dead in our trespasses and sin? Were we not crushed under the slavery, the captivity of Satan? And what has God done? The Lord has fulfilled his promise. I've delivered you. I've given you sight. Enabled you to see me in a way that millions and billions of people upon this planet cannot see. They don't know who I am, but you do. I gave you that sight. Gave you that spiritual desire to be in a house of worship tonight. gave you grace. I'm the God of Jacob. I'm your God too. The promises of God are assured, brother and sister in Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Now we understand perhaps a little bit better what the psalmist is so joyful and exuberant about. And how much more then should we who have had the true reality of Jesus Christ come into this world to die save us blessed assurance Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste glory divine amen amen father thank you for your word for its comfort for its challenge lord we we always struggle looking for human people to look up to. Lord, may we always, always be turning to you. 
Thank you for fulfilling your promises in and through Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.